Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Now I left off a couple, about three weeks ago. We talked about wives and husbands and children. So let's begin again at verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So we're going to pick it up in verse 21, speaking to fathers, or if you will, uh, parents in general. And... uh, Paul writes, he says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Not might, they will become discouraged. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and Paul writes there much the same thing. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Parents, and particularly fathers, are not to stir up, they're not to provoke, they're not to irritate or exasperate their children. Another way to say it is stop nagging them, stop inciting them. And failure to do this will cause children to become discouraged, it'll cause children to lose heart. They will be discouraged. The idea is that they'll be without courage, without spirit. Parents can, in fact, take the heart out of their children by failing to discipline them lovingly and to instruct them in the ways of the Lord with balance. It's not an easy thing to be a parent. Would you agree? I'll never forget when we we had our son, Michael. Julie looked at me and says, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. (laughs) We're going to feed him, change him. And we're going to read the word to him. And so growing up, we would always read the word and uh, memorize Proverbs together. Michael asked me one day, he says, why are we memorizing Proverbs? Because I said, because I want you to know the difference between wisdom and foolishness. And that's what Proverbs is about. Now, there are several ways parents can cause their children to lose heart. And I know we have lots of parents here today, and this is hopefully meant to be an encouragement to you and some prospective parents with us this morning. (laughs) Number one, as parents, we can embitter, we can exasperate, 
Literally, the Greek word translates provoke our children by overprotection, not allowing them any liberty, strict rules for everything. Because when we do that, we send a signal to the child that the child can't be trusted because nothing they do is trustworthy. We, we can't trust them. And this ultimately leads the child to begin to despair, believing that that child and their behavior is, quite frankly, irrelevant. And if their behavior is irrelevant, why not just go the way of the flesh and the way of the world and rebel? Are you with me? Does that make sense to you? So it's important not to be overprotective. And as parents, we are to provide rules, we provide guidelines, but these should not become literally a noose that strangles our children. You'd be amazed when you, you learn. It, raising children is an art. It's an art. You kind of learn along the way, and uh, lots and lots of prayer goes along with it. And you learn to be students of your children. How has God made them? What are their gifts and abilities and talents? Where, how do they lean? Where do, what direction are they looking at? But you still want to give them guidance. And above all, we must communicate to our children that they are trustworthy. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. And the more we inculcate that into them, you find that they will aspire to want to be trusted. Does that make sense? You always set the bar for them. Secondly, parents can embitter or exasperate their children by showing favoritism. That's done most often by unwittingly comparing the child to his or her siblings or uh, classmates or other kids in the neighborhood. Why can't you be like so-and-so? Why can't you be like your, your brother or your sister? This can create a terrible sense of frustration in that child. Thirdly, parents can embitter or exasperate their children by depreciating their worth. Many children have been convinced that what they do and what they feel are not important. This communicates that they are not significant. One way parents can do this to their kids is simply by not listening. I mean, we all know what it's like. I mean, we, we know, you know, those of us who are more mature and further down the road, we know what to say and what to do, and our kids want to speak up, and we just cut them off. My son reminded me often growing up, Dad, let me talk. Listen to me. And too many parents don't listen to their kids. They don't let their kids think out loud. And as they think out loud, they're going to come to some pretty good conclusions. Plus, when you let them talk, they're much more responsive to your feedback and to your input. So listen, listen to our kids. Children who are not listened to, quite frankly, may just give up, give up trying to communicate and become discouraged, shy, and withdrawn. There's a fourth way that parents can embitter or exasperate their children is by setting unrealistic expectations. How? By never never rewarding them and never letting them feel they have succeeded. 
I've heard this over and over over the years. Nothing I did was ever enough. It was never enough. So kids really, really never get approval. And they need approval. Some parents try to make their children into something they themselves were not in their own lives. And those results can also be tragic because children become so frustrated that in the long run, some will even commit suicide. They'll kill themselves. They can never, ever match up. They can't be what their parents wanted them to be. A fifth way we do this as parents is by failing to show affection. As parents, we need to communicate love to our children both verbally and physically. It's okay to kiss your kids. Growing up, I would kiss Michael all the time on the lips. My wife said, are we going to make him strange doing that? I said, no, this is going to guarantee he's not going to be strange. Failing to show affection simply will discourage and alienate the child. Number six, by not providing for their needs. This may seem obvious, but very often it's not, tragically. Children need things. They need, they need a sense of privacy. They need a space that they can call their own. They need a place to play. They need new, clean clothes. They need a place to study. They need their own possessions. And they need good food, good meals. And providing these necessities, by doing that, parents show their respect and their concern for their children. Well provided for. Number seven, parents can exasperate their children by a lack of standards. This is the opposite of overprotection. When parents fail to discipline or they discipline inconsistently, children are left on their own. Consistency is important in life in anything we do. Would you agree? I'm forever counseling husbands. Love your wife consistently, consistently, consistently. Not hit and miss. And the same thing is true with discipline for our children. There has to be consistency to that. Children cannot handle the kind of freedom where there is no discipline, there is no training, and that leads to feelings of insecurity and feelings of being unloved. There's an eighth way, and this is by criticism. One child expert wrote this, a child learns what he or she lives. A child learns what he or she lives. If the child lives with criticism, that child does not learn responsibility. The child learns to condemn him or herself, to find fault with others. They learn to doubt their own judgment, to disparage their own ability, and to distrust the intentions of others. And above all, the child learns to live with continual expectation of impending doom, all from being criticized. Parents should seek to create in the home a positive, constructive environment, not a critical environment. You can't say enough positive things. You can't build up those kids enough. They're already sinners 
They already need encouragement. They already need our support. Number nine, we can create these things in children's lives by neglecting them. The classic biblical example of neglect was King David and his son Absalom. Do you remember that? David just was quite frankly indifferent to Absalom when you read the text. And the result was Absalom rebelled, fomented civil war, and ultimately his own led to his own tragic death. Parents need to be involved in their children's lives. Don't neglect them. You need to be involved in their lives. Number 10, by excessive discipline. This is the parent who abuses the child either verbally, emotionally, or physically. Put-downs, criticism, abuse. Parents often say things to their children they would never say to anyone else. Tragically. Just think about it in your own life. If you're raising children, if you've raised children, have you said things to them that you would never say to another person. Parents should never discipline in anger, but rather learn how to lovingly correct their children just as their Heavenly Father lovingly corrects and disciplines them. In an article entitled Children Learn What They Live, the influence of parents can be summed up this way. If a child lives with criticism, that child learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, that child learns to fight. If a child lives with ridicule, that child learns to be shy. If a child lives with shame, he or she learns to feel guilty. If a child lives with tolerance, he learns patience. If a child lives with encouragement, he learns confidence. If a child lives with praise, he learns appreciation. If a child lives with fairness, He learns justice. Am I going too fast? (laughs) Want me to repeat them? No, you're okay. You guys already know this stuff anyway, right? If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith. If a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. If a child lives with acceptance and friendship, he learns to find love in the world. Not exasperating our children is essential if as parents we are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, there's a final relationship in the ancient Near Eastern home. That is the relationship between masters and slaves. 
Now, when, when the New Testament talks about slavery, there's a, is a, is a different kind of slavery they're talking about than what we know and, and what we know post and pre-Civil War slavery. Are you with me? Okay. But there's a principle here that still, I think, holds true. So this final relationship has to do with that of masters and slaves. Now, in our day, I think the closest we can get by comparison is the relationship between employee and employer. Are you with me? Now, the analogy kind of breaks down, but I think that's the closest we can get to this comparison. And we should take note that although the Word of God never advocates slavery, and we certainly don't condone slavery as our, we have known it, and as, as it goes on even today, in all sorts of different ways and all sorts of different places, it's abhorrent. The New Testament <clears throat> does recognize that slavery is an element of society or was an element of society that could be beneficial if both slaves and masters treated each other as they should, and especially if the masters and the slaves were believers. Are you with me? So far from seeking to abolish slavery in the New Testament era, in that first century, the Lord and the apostles use it rather as a motif for spiritual instruction by likening the believer who belongs to Christ and serves Christ to a slave. Does the Bible refer to us as slaves of Christ? Yeah, so, so in a very real sense, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servants. The Greek word doulos, which refers to the very lowest of low positions in society. So in the New Testament, we see an acceptance of slavery as a social reality, and the New Testament seeks to instruct those who are in that system to behave in a Christ-like manner. So again, if you were a master, a Christian master, uh, you were to treat your slaves as brothers, and vice versa, if you were a Christian slave, you were to treat your master as a brother. Are you with me? A, a classic example is... Uh, the book of Philemon, and Paul sends this runaway slave, Onesimus, uh, back to his master Philemon, and, and Paul asks Philemon to treat his returned slave with kindness and forgiveness, restoring the relationship, if you will, between the two to its divine design. Rather than commanding slaves to rebel and overthrow uh, their slavery, Paul says, obey your earthly masters in everything, in verse 22 of our chapter. And it's really irrelevant what the social form may be, slavery or freedom, if the relationship is godly. It's irrelevant at that point. And much like in our culture today, we, we get so tied up with all the temporal earthly things that we lose sight of heavenly things. Remember the, the first couple of verses of chapter 3. Paul says what? Set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Where our tendency is to set our minds and our hearts on earthly things. And we get all tied up and all frustrated 
And so in that sense, it's irrelevant, if, if you will, of what social form uh, may be, slavery or freedom. As in the relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children, the principle boils down to this, authority and submission. Authority and submission, these are essential to Paul's way of thinking. That's the whole point of his discussion there. The phrase, notice, in everything is comprehensive. It refers to both the enjoyable and the distasteful duties. Sometimes we just don't want to do that which is distasteful. And yet, in everything, Paul says. The obedience required of slaves, not merely external. He says to them, doing a duty with a reluctant attitude only to win the master's favor. Rather, Christian slaves, Christian servants, or to please the Lord by working with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Who am I working for? Who am I serving ultimately? It's the Lord. Wherever I find myself, whatever position I find myself, I want him to be honored and glorified by how I live, how I conduct myself. Does that make sense? Are we in agreement? In verse 23 of our passage, Paul writes, whatever you do, whatever you do, serve as you would serve the Lord. You're serving the Lord. He is our ultimate master. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, you see a parallel of this. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. It was very, very important that the testimony uh, given by even slaves who were living with uh, uh, unjust masters, still their testimony was one of faithfulness so that the word of God and uh, that the Lord himself would not be slandered. Now, Paul gives two reasons for slaves or, if you will, uh, employees to obey their masters. First of all, the Lord will repay them for their faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord knows. I don't know about you, but you can take comfort in the fact that the God knows exactly what's going on in my life, and he will provide whatever I need, and he will repay me for my faithfulness. And so, therefore, those slaves can endure injustice. They can endure inequity, knowing that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. The earthly master or employer, if you will, may not give the servant what he deserves, but the Lord will. He's the one. God is the one who will assure the eternal compensation is what it should be. In Revelation chapter 20, we read this. And I saw the dead, great and small, stand before the throne. And notice this. And the what? The books were opened. There's books. God keeps records. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. 
each person was judged according to what he had, what? What he had done in this life. That doesn't bear on salvation. If you are a Christian, if you're born again, you are saved, all right. But your works, what you do, either as a believer or a non-believer, and most non-believers are trying to achieve heaven by their works, and we know that's not a possibility. But even believers are going to be rewarded for their works or not. And as an employee on the job or a servant in the home, it is the Lord who we are serving. Don't ever lose sight of that. God, I'm serving you ultimately. I'm serving you. That brings things into, I think, proper perspective. Would you agree? Paul next gives a negative reason for obedience in verse 25. Notice what he says here. He says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. The warning is that the Lord will discipline without partiality in cases of disobedience. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, again, you see the same principle played out here. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows. Whether you're a believer or not, you're going to reap what you sow. The Christian servant, the Christian employee, is not to presume on his or her Christianity to justify disobedience. Even, even if we are God's children, we will reap what we sow because God is impartial. He shows no favoritism. And then he turns to the masters, or employers, if you will. They are to treat their slaves rightly and fairly. Employers are to treat their employees rightly and fairly because they expect the same from their master who is in heaven. So if you're a Christian employer, you should treat your employees rightly and fairly because you expect the same thing from God. Amen? And God will judge masters who mistreat their slaves as he as he will slaves who fail to serve their masters. Remember, we are all spiritually equal in Christ. There is no difference. Masters must treat their Christian servants as brothers in Christ, and vice versa, servants and slaves must treat their masters as brothers in Christ. And they should desire to treat them as they would want the Lord to treat themselves. Now think about this. If all Christians obeyed God's word, if all Christians obeyed God's word, displaying the characteristics of relationships spelled out in our text, would the results be dramatic? Oh, absolutely. You'd put the whole counseling business out of business. If husbands were loving their wives, wives were submitting to their husbands, children were obeying their parents, and employers and employees were serving in a godly manner. As a result, believers would indeed be lights shining in the darkness. I love this passage in Philippians chapter 2. We'll close with this. Do everything without what? Or? We love to complain, don't we? 
man, that's a default for most all of us. We just start complaining or arguing. He says, do everything without arguing, without complaining, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked, depraved generation in which you shine like what? Stars. Stars in the universe. Should we as Christians be shining? Absolutely. People need to look at us and say, well, you are so different. I like what you have. I like what you are. How do I get that? Oh, let me tell you. Amen? Is this helpful? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you again for your grace to us. And thank you, Lord, for your word and for your spirit who illuminates our understanding. I pray that as we conclude this chapter, Lord, that more and more of us would be just filled with excitement and joy to meditate on it, to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts so we might not sin against you. Lord, we thank you for your love and for your grace to us. We are humbled. You are an awesome God. You are a good God. You are faithful to your purposes. We trust you. We give you thanks this morning. Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that your spirit would search our hearts. If there's anything in us that's a hurtful way that we could confess it to you and Lord, that uh, know and have confidence that you forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Have your way in us, O Lord, O Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.